How can you achieve and maintain business growth? Harvard Business School Executive Education is now accepting applications for a new program, Driving Profitable Growth. Taking place in Boston from October 25th through the 28th, this program focuses on business expansion and organizational growth strategies that can lead your company into the future. Learn more about this three-day program for senior leaders by visiting hbs.me growth. That's hbs.me growth. You are Locked On the NBA, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. It is Locked On NBA, Western Conference Midseason Report number two. I'm David Locke, host of Locked On NBA, radio voice of the Utah Jazz, as well as founder of the Locked On Podcast Network. Thanks so very much for tuning in. I hope you've grabbed the first three versions of this. This is the fourth and final today. We have Clippers, Jazz, Wolves, Lakers, Kings, Grizzlies, Nuggets, Mavericks. All coming your direction in that order. Uh, today's show is brought to you by SeatGeek. Use the promo code LOCKED and you get $20 rebate after your purchase. That's the promo code LOCKED. And today brought to you by Warby Parker. Oh, love Warby Parker. My son actually just got glasses. They're all Warby Parkers. We just found out that he's been walking around not being able to see here for a while, and we took care of that. My wife's uh, birthday was yesterday. We Warby Parkered uh, all of that and uh, got her two new sets of glasses, so check it out. Uh, Warby Parker has the great home try-on for you. So go to Warby Parker, uh, dot com slash locked, and you'll end up, uh, with, uh, you can try on five pairs of glasses uh, for five days, no obligation, and you can ship them back. They start at $95, uh, including prescription lenses. It's really cool. Warby Parker's great fun. So those two uh, brought you the program today. Uh, for those who are new to the midseason reports, I hope you'll go back and grab the other three. Uh, but what it is is I have asked the host of the Locked On Podcast Network to answer some quick questions for you and give you a quick rundown of what it is uh, and where their team stands. The first question is, what's the number one storyline of the season? Number two is who's better than you thought and who's less good than you thought. Number three is are you buyers or sellers at the trade deadline? And then if so, what are you looking for? And five, what is the key to the second half of the season? So that's what we've got coming for you. It's the Clippers and the Jazz, then the Wolves and the Lakers, the Kings and the Grizzlies, the Nuggets and the Mavericks. Let's start it off with the Clippers and the Chris Paul injury. Here's Locked on Clippers. Hi, everyone. My name is Lucas Han. I'm the host of Locked On Clippers and the editor-in-chief of ClipsNation.com. You can subscribe to Locked On Clippers on iTunes. It's a daily Clippers podcast talking about game previews, game recaps, news updates, you know, all the good stuff, taking your guys' questions, too. So getting into the Clippers midseason report, I think the main storyline around the Clippers this year has to be injuries. And it doesn't get any fresher or more painful than... The news coming on Tuesday night that Chris Paul would be out six to eight weeks with a sprained left thumb. He suffered it in the game against Oklahoma City on Monday night, and it's really just, it's brutal. Because the Clippers already missed Chris Paul with a hamstring. They had a six-game losing streak with him out. Blake Griffin hasn't played in almost a month after having a minor knee surgery to clean up some trouble he was having down there. And they've been missing other guys in and out of the lineup too. J.J. Redick missed a few games. Um, it's just, it's been, 
the team has struggled to get healthy all year, and it's the reason they are where they are in the standings instead of being higher where they'd ideally like to be. Now, the their main problem, it has to be getting healthy because as long as Chris Paul is out and he's supposed to be out six to eight weeks as he recovers from this thumb surgery, the Clippers are going to struggle to win basketball games. And it, it hurts because Chris Paul and Blake Griffin are both having such great years. Chris Paul is averaging 18 points, 10 assists, 5 rebounds, shooting 40% from deep. Blake Griffin's averaging 21 points, 9 rebounds, and 5 assists. These guys are both top-of-the-class players. And to miss both of them for such big chunks of time and then at times be missing both of them at the same time, it just cripples this team. It's really, it's really devastated what could be a promising season with the way the West was looking before the year. It's just cut the Clippers down. They started the year 14-2. and two. They struggled a little bit, and then they got injured, and they just haven't been the same since. Even in this latest seven-game winning streak, they haven't been the same as they were at the beginning of the year because Blake Griffin isn't back. And now with Chris Paul out going forward, they're going to really struggle. Um, but some of the good things, some of the bright spots, I think, for the Clippers this year have been off the bench. Austin Rivers has been like a revelation, a complete, complete shock based on what we expected from him and what he's given so far this season. He's scoring 11 points a game. He's distributing the ball better, even though he's still not a true distributor. And the most shocking thing, I think, for most people, is how well he's shooting the three-pointer. He's shooting 39% from deep. He's been up around 40 for most of the past few weeks. And he's never been a shooter before in his career. He's never been a guy who's been more than average from three. And now all of a sudden he's a knockdown 39-40% guy and that's made a huge difference for the huge difference for the Clippers offense. I think a couple other guys who you have to mention would be Raymond Felton and Maurice Spates. You know, Spates puts up better numbers. You are anytime your backup center is scoring 10 points a game, 5 rebounds, shooting 40% from deep, that's amazing. But Felton's been really solid too. He manages the second unit well. And one thing that he does Whenever the Clippers' second unit is giving up a run and starting to sort of blow a lead that the starters have built, Felton finds a way to get to the rim and get an easy bucket. And that's the kind of veteran presence combined with scoring ability that the Clippers haven't had in a backup point guard in a long time. Um, So those three guys off the bench have definitely made a huge, huge positive impact. I think two guys who you have to look at as disappointments would be Jamal Crawford and Wesley Johnson, the other two guys on that five-man bench unit. Crawford... I'm not worried about his raw scoring numbers, but his efficiency is down. He's at 39% from the field and 31% from deep, and he's actually been worse as the season has gone along, getting down into the 20s from the field in the last 10 games or so and into the single digits from deep. Wesley Johnson, who the Clippers hoped would be able to be sort of a 3 and D stretch 4 off the bench, is only shooting 27% from deep after shooting 33% last year. If he can't start making shots, it's going to be hard for him to stay in the rotation. Now, for the Clippers at the trade deadline, I don't think there's a lot of, really a lot of flexibility. They don't want to give up more future draft picks after what happened with Jeff Green last year. They don't have a lot of guys with very much trade value. So I think the Clippers will stay pat. I don't think they're really buyers or sellers, but... If a good player comes along at a cheap enough price, the Clippers would look to make that upgrade. I think one thing to watch is this Carmelo Anthony situation in New York. Because Carmelo has a no-trade clause and the Knicks don't have leverage to seek a good offer, they might have to settle for 
a less than great offer that the Clippers can make if A, the Knicks really want to move him, and B, Carmelo Anthony is willing to waive his no-trade clause to come to the Clippers. It's a long shot, but that's the type of deal the Clippers need. They'd have to, it would have to be a clear win because they don't really have the assets to make solid lateral moves. Jamal Crawford isn't getting you a great return in a trade. I think the key for the second half of the season, it just has to be getting healthy and hopefully trying to get that three seed away from Houston. You know, it was looking a lot more likely before this Chris Paul injury news that the Clippers were going to be able to catch Houston for the three seed. But even now, there's still only two losses behind Houston with two head-to-head matchups remaining. The bench, the fill-in guys, the non-Chris Paul guys have to take care of business so the Clippers can get that good seeding. Because whoever they play in the first round, the Clippers should beat. And they feel really good about a second-round matchup against the Spurs. But the Warriors have given the the Clippers trouble for years, and the Clippers haven't been able to figure them out. And it's a psychological game at this point where they're in their own heads. Now, if the Clippers can avoid the Warriors until the Western Conference Finals, maybe they've built up some confidence. Maybe someone like Houston can eliminate the Warriors earlier on. Then the Clippers have a shot. And even then, if they don't beat the Warriors, they at least made it to the Conference Finals instead of losing in the second round again. But that can only happen if they get up to that three seed, because I don't think they're going to fall all the way to six. So the goal for the second half of the season, regardless of health, they can't make excuses. They've got to go get that three seed so they have a good shot at the Western Conference Finals. Thanks for listening, guys. Again, this is Lucas Han of Locked On Clippers and ClipsNation.com. Well, the Clippers have a brutal stretch coming up in their schedule. Uh, Without CP3... Uh, probably most importantly, their next six games, which they probably should still win a bunch of them, uh, depending when Blake comes back. They are – I don't think anyone's dropping as far as six. The question is whether they drop to five and whether the next team we look at, the Utah Jazz, uh, is able to catch them and uh, put them into the – so they're playing a road game in the first round of the playoff series. All right, let's go to Locked on Jazz. I am the host of Locked on Jazz. What is the number one storyline – of this season. Uh, the number one storyline of the season is probably the incredible injuries. It started with Gordon Hayward in the preseason. It followed with George Hill. Uh, Derek Favors wasn't right for a huge part of the year. Alec Burks uh, out for uh, much, did not get ready through training camp. Now Rodney Hood is out with a knee injury for a few weeks. The starting lineup of the Utah Jazz has played Almost none together. Uh, the continuity is really lacking uh, in, a, in great levels because of that. Their starting lineup has played eight games all season long, 94 minutes together. Not even sure if it actually has been that good together yet. That's the number one storyline of the season for the Utah Jazz uh, has been the injuries. The other storyline that's worth talking about is the increase of veteran presence of George Hill at the point guard, Joe Johnson, and Boris Diaw. That was the big storyline coming in, whether it would make an impact, and it has. The Jazz in the last two years in late games have been very poor, uh, often coming from behind in those games, and so unable to close them out. But the Jazz in games that were within five points with five minutes left in the last two seasons were 30 31 and 52 in over the last two seasons 31 uh, and 52 this year it's been completely different this year this these got this team has <clears throat> won close games held on they've won the games that actually kind of close uh, close games 
the kind of good teams win where you're not playing great all night and then you go on an 11-0 run late and are able to pull it off. And they're 15-9 and now in games are decided by five or less. That's the fourth most amount of wins uh, of anyone in the NBA. Only Boston, Memphis, and Washington have won more. Uh, that winning percentage of 625 is the sixth best uh, in the NBA in close games. So uh, a lot of that has to do uh, with the veteran presence of a George Hill, of a Joe Johnson, of a Boris Diaw, as well as the natural maturation uh, of this team. Who's better than we thought and who's had a tougher year than we thought? Well, the two guys that actually should be talked about here are Gordon Hayward and Rudy Gobert. They both have become dramatically better players than they were a year ago. Both of them were established, but both of them, with the injuries that have taken place on this roster, have been asked to do even more. Hayward now, in his seventh season in the NBA, has done so, has gone from 19 points a game to 22 points a game. His rebounding's are up. His rebounds up a rebound a game. His three point shooting is up five percentage points from a year ago. His over, his field goal percentage is up three. His effective field goal percentage is from 49 to 53. He's become a regular night in and night out 20 point a game scorer, which he was not before he scored 20 or more in 26 of 36 games he's played this year. So this is a this is a different player. Uh, it was huge talk about his offseason. He put in amazing amount of work. He went to work out with Kobe Bryant along the way. Uh, he's now watching video in a different manner, following some models of Peyton Manning, and has completely changed uh, who he is as a player. He's at a much higher level uh, than he was. He's not shooting well late in games yet this year. Uh, that's been the one... Uh, bugaboo. Rudy Gobert in his fourth season is vastly improved. He's improved from nine points a game to 12 points a game, but the biggest difference is his free throw shooting has gone from 56 to 66, and his field goal percentage has gone from 56 to 66% as well. He's a force rolling to the rim offensively, which he was not in the past, and that has opened up three-point shooting deals for the Jazz and other things, particularly corner three shooting. Defensively, he's a master. He's the best rim protector in the NBA. The Jazz are the number one defense restricted area. The Jazz are the number number one defense in the paint. The Jazz are the number one defense at denying three corner threes. Those are all based on Rudy Gobert in every which way. So those are the two players that are better. The third player that should be mentioned is Joe Ingles. Uh, Joe Ingles, with all the injuries, has become an incredibly uh, valuable piece to the Jazz. He's not someone you would probably naturally think of uh, when you think of these type of players. He's shooting 46% from three right now, which leads the NBA. Uh, he's averaging about 20 minutes a night. He is, of all bizarre things, become the late-game defensive stopper uh, against the likes of Lou Williams, LeBron James, Devin Booker, and others in close games. To close out games, he has guarded those players uh, to deal with those matchups. So he deserves uh, a huge uh, accolades. He's a free agent at the end of the year. Uh, the player that has probably been a little less good are two of them. Dante Exum has not hit a rhythm coming off his ACL injury. The team has kind of passed him by. Uh, the pure uh, level of just having development available for you is not there. This team has become too good now. 
uh, with the Jazz currently sitting uh, at fourth in the Western Conference. He's shooting just 40% from the field and 27% from threes, having a hard time staying on the floor with foul trouble issues. Uh, he just is not, his development just with the year off in the ACL has just been slowed down, and now there's just not 30 minutes for him to just go out and make a ton of mistakes. Uh, his lateral quickness doesn't seem to be quite the same off the ACL. None of these things are uncommon. Uh, when you look at players, Lou Williams is a good example of it takes seemingly the year after the ACL uh, to get back. The other one is Derek Favors, though he is rounding into shape a little bit, but he was really going to use training camp to get into shape and then got injured. He's only played 28 games this year, and he has not been uh, predominantly the thing that's noticeable is his play around the rim. He's been one of the best rim finishers in the NBA. He's been a 70% rim finisher throughout his NBA career. He's at 50% this year. Uh, the bounce is beginning to come back a little bit. We're beginning to see him look like his normal self again in the month of January. His shooting percentage is, uh, is back up uh, from, you know, frankly, December was 36%. So in January, it's 47%. But this guy has been a, a 50% shooter for, for much of his career. Uh, we're beginning to see that come back around, and the team's been better when he's on the floor uh, f- for them so far. Uh, are the Jazz buyers or sellers at the trade deadline? I think they're a mix. I mean, I, they have some contracts like a Shelvin Mack and some others that if they feel as though are not going to be on the roster a year from now and they have enough depth around them that they could probably – uh, move something and get some future assets without damaging their run this year. And at the same time, uh, they probably could deal with another wing defender, uh, maybe another wing scorer a little bit, uh, which are awfully hard to come by in this league. But if the right deal were to present itself and the right player were to be available, maybe even the Jazz get in the buyout market. You heard so much of that in midseason report number one about the Spurs and the Warriors. The Jazz do have a bunch of cap space, uh, though they may use that cap space to sign George Hill or Derek Favors uh, to an extension. And finally, what is the key for the Jazz in the second half of the season to call it a success? The first one is they've got to figure out how to be successful with Rudy Gobert off the floor and with George Hill off the floor. Those are the two areas right now. Uh, they've gotten much better recently with Rudy Gobert off the floor, but they've, Derek Favors plays those backup center minutes. Those are vital minutes. The Jazz are so good when Rudy's on the floor for his 34 minutes, 35 minutes night. Uh, are they okay in those other 14 minutes? And the same thing uh, for George Hill. Is it Shelvin Mack? Is it Dante Exum? Is it Howell Neto? Which one of these players is going to be able to step forward and secure uh, those minutes? And then I think the Jazz, it's vital that they – it. Uh, have a success. They haven't made the playoffs in a while. Uh, one of the things I think is vital for this team is trying to make sure they have home court in the first round. They have never, they have no playoff experience as a group. Uh, they have not been, uh, they have not been a playoff team. They're currently, I said fourth. They're actually currently sitting fifth in the West, two games behind the Clippers. Can they catch the Clippers with a Chris Paul injury? Uh, if they can get themselves to four and have that home court series, home court to start a series, it would be vital for them because otherwise they could find themselves with the lack of a playoff experience down in a two hole uh, very quickly and have the season uh, come to an abrupt end. Uh, this is a team that has not hit its stride yet has not shown how good it can be. So that would probably be the other thing is at some point in the second half of the season having some continuity uh, to show uh, what they can do. That is the Utah Jazz. Before we turn it over to Zachary Bennett and Locked on Wolves, which has been a funky season, we'll be interested to hear what he has to say. Let me remind you about SeatGeek. If you're looking to uh, head to any sporting event, concert, theater, anything of the sort, 
SeatGeek is the answer uh, for the easiest way for you to buy tickets. It's how I do all of my ticket shopping, and here's why. Three main reasons. One, SeatGeek pulls all the tickets available on all other sites, puts them in one place. You save time. You never miss a deal. You don't have to go to multiple places to figure it out. Second, if you don't know the arena or the venue you're going to, they are, give you a ticket grade on every single ticket, which lets you then choose where. Maybe you can choose what area you want to be in the arena, and then they show you which is the best buy. So it really eliminates that. And then best of all, it is guaranteed. It is on set for you on your phone. So it's the easiest way to buy tickets. It's eliminating all the problems in the past of multiple sites not knowing your arena. And the app is free. So download the app, then use the promo code LOCKED. And when you use the promo code LOCKED, you get $20 rebate after your first purchase. That's all from our friends at SeatGeek. It's right on my phone right now. If you're heading to an NBA game in the second half of the season, you're going to want to use SeatGeek. But it's also great for concerts. Or if you're traveling and know you're going to an event, you can set a price alert for it. So download the app now. Enter in the promo code under settings for SeatGeek. Let's turn it over now to Locked on Wolves. Locked on Timberwolves podcast here. Zachary Bennett reporting in. Find me on Twitter at Zachary BD. Find Locked on Timberwolves at, on Twitter at Locked on Wolves. Joining me in studio for this midseason review, Tom Schreier, frequent contributor to this program, co-founder of ColdOmaha.com. Published a midseason review yesterday, which you can check out at ColdOmaha.com. Tom is my editor-in-chief, my boss, much yep. like David Locke, curator of the, the Locked on Podcast Network. We're here to give you... The Timberwolves midseason review in audio form. Some quick-hitting questions. I'll ask Tom. I'll either agree, disagree. I'll uh, expand, uh, depending on my answer. And that's it. So we hope you tune in. Subscribe. Locked on Timberwolves podcast. Yeah. What do you think, Tom? Fun? Yeah, they're good. And they're a fun team, even if you're not a big Wolves fan. Insi- exciting. In- insightful, yet engaging pod is what I would right. describe it as. Exactly. Keep exactly. It, keeping it loose. You know, yeah, we have some fun. It's been, we uh, both cover the team, both have access and all that. It's the, nice. the team has uh, not been to, the, been to the playoffs in a while, so not always good things to talk about, but an, an exciting and uh, future, we hope. Yep. Question number one, Tom, what's your number one storyline of the season? Number one storyline is they need to play 48 minutes. They've had bad quarters, often the third quarter, and sometimes even bad halves. Um, occasionally in Chicago, they just have a bad first quarter and then win the game. But Or in the uh, instance of Sunday against Dallas, they just... Play bad for all four quarters. Right. But generally, this has been a team that plays 36 to 40 minutes. The storyline of the season is if they play 48 or something close to that, they are one hell of a team. Um, but they're having trouble in the fourth quarter now, third quarter earlier in the season. Sometimes, because Dallas don't play. It sucks. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if they played as well as they could play for all 48 minutes, they'd have no problems, right? Yeah. No, they'd be a, a really phenomenal team. Specifically, too, crunch time has been a problem for them. And, uh, and Thibodeau, Thibodeau, to his credit, Comes out and says it. Yeah, he's he been play better in the fourth quarter. Stop going rogue. He's uh, yeah, he's been refreshingly frank in that regard, as is in terms of how he feels about his team's play. But the Wolves in games where they're ahead or behind five points in the last five minutes, they are five and fifteen. Offensive rating of ninety two point seven, one hundred points per one hundred possessions. Defensive rating of one hundred and eleven point six. That's a, a difference of. Uh, nearly 19. That's not good. Uh, you mentioned going rogue, especially defensively. Uh, Tom Thibodeau has mentioned it's been a big problem. I know in some instances it's been, you know, maybe Towns is rotating off a player near the basket to try to make the highlight reel game saving dunk. And uh, to, uh, 
to Thibodeau's dismay, he's leaving a player that he's guarding, and the the guy he goes to to block dishes it off to the the guy that Towns was guarding, and then that guy gets a dunk. And, you know. and his teammates don't know what's going on and all this. I'm glad Thibodeau is not tiptoeing around this. He's just very direct with what's happening. Second question: Who's better than you thought they'd be, and who's been not as good as you expected? Zach Levine is better than I thought I'd be. He uh, he's become a, the you know third member of the big three. There's some question if him and Wiggins are redundant, but when you're, what was he, number 13, 14 pick is redundant with your number one overall pick or the guy you traded for who was a number one overall pick, that's a good problem to have for the Minnesota Timberwolves. So for sure he is better than I thought he would be. Zach Levine shooting uh, the ball well from all areas of the floor better than he did last year uh, percentage-wise, which is important because he's playing more minutes, he's getting more reps, he ranks in the uh, top uh, ranks in the 96th percentile or pfft, uh, 90th percentile in terms of points per possession. One oh one zero six. One of the most uh, reliable offensive players, in my opinion. You know, has his has his bad game here and there, but when you need a bucket, you can give it to Zach Levine. He's got the uh, release point that's higher than most defenders can block. And you're right; he's certainly become a member of the proverbial big three with Carl Anthony Towns and. And Andrew Wiggins, and I know recently there's been some talk. You know, Wolves are three and zero without Zach Levine. They should they should trade him. It's like your small sample size. Let's let's Th- Thibodeau's other line. The lines will or the numbers will tell you whatever you want to hear. Sometimes, yeah, you know that's I mean? that that's definitely true. And I need to be reminded of that sometimes. <laughs> um, but yeah, pump the brakes on the trade talk. I think Zach Levine has has been certainly better than expected, and that's why he's my answer. Who's been not as good? Shabazz Muhammad. I I really think he can be a special player in this league. I think he has a lot of the tools. Uh, at times it looks like he can score it well. We just haven't seen that as much this year. Maybe it's a change of scenery. Maybe it's how he's used, but uh, he has been disappointing to me. Yeah, he's been disappointing in that he's not developed his game at all. Uh, coming out of college, a lot of his production came in transition. He has the low block post-ups, and he can shoot the corner three, and I think that's what he continues to do uh, at the NBA level, and you know that's been the case throughout his time in the league, but continues to to shoot poorly above the break. Not a great ball handler. Hasn't improved in that area at all, and has tends to struggle. And despite uh, despite games where he gets hot, my answer was Nemanja Bjelica, still shooting just over thirty percent, thirty one point eight percent from three point range. That was something that you know fans and, and analysts alike expected him to thrive at at the yep. NBA level. Yep, shoots well. Uh, Unguarded three-point attempts, he, he shoots really well. Uh, but guarded three-point attempts, he uh, does not shoot very well. Let me give you a percentage just to give you some context. So I'm not just spewing stuff uh, out of my mouth. I have it here. Um, guarded three-point attempts, he's 11 of 50. Unguarded, he's 22 of 46. And the unguarded attempts should be more because oftentimes he finds himself not guarded and he looks to make the extra pass or drives the lane and, uh, it doesn't always end up working for him. Next question, do you see the Wolves as buyers or sellers at the trade deadline? I think they should be buyers. I think they should be going all in for the playoffs. Um, whether that's a projection or what they should do, I think it's more than what they should do. But um, Who do they sell? Or Yeah, who yeah, do they who, sell to buy? Yeah, I mean, I think the guy, you don't touch Levine. I think you try to see what you can get for Rubio, Muhammad. They've got the 10 mil cap space. Yeah, I mean, even, even like a... 
I don't know who wants Brandon Rush right now, but um, he has heated up a little bit late, lately. But for sure, I think your big chips are uh, Ruby and Muhammad. I wouldn't even mess with Tyus Jones. I really like him as a uh, as a backup kind of for for a long tenure here, as long as you know that's what he's willing to do, and it's a good situation for him. Yeah, my answer was Sellers, and I wanted to get you to talk about the Sellers briefly for the yep. sake of time. I think uh, Brandon Rush is a good name. You mentioned among Sellers. I mean, if the Wolves are going to play well when he's on the floor, when Shabazz Muhammad can't play. It shows that he's a valuable player yep. to their team. But to the league, I think Tom Thibodeau has said Shabazz Muhammad is going to play over Brandon Rush. That's it. So I think he's made Brandon Rush an asset to any team looking for uh, help on the, the three-point line in terms of three-point percentage. guy who can knock down the three and make the right plays. Defensively, he steps in recently for the injured Zach Levine and plays uh, well uh, next to Wiggins on the wing, and he's on the one-year deal, so teams aren't making a, a full commitment, and he's basically a rental at that point. So he would be a chip. Shabazz Muhammad, you mentioned, uh, could be a chip. Maybe Ricky Rubio, maybe Tyus Jones. I don't know, but I think if you're the Wolves, you're really looking at yourselves and saying, are we able to compete for the ace seed? And if not, I think you have to, to look at some of the, the pieces that you have and, and maybe make a deal. Yeah. What is the key to call the second half of the season a success i'll get eye rolls but they got to make the playoffs i think that they need to do i that. just rolled the eyes i know I, I i because it's attainable and because you know they're kind of in the mix with these bad teams fighting for that eighth seed probably to just get knocked off by the warriors um either way this brings playoff basketball back to minnesota for the first time since 2004 i believe and since puberty for me right right and i in order to fill that building next year and generate hype for the team, you need to have this experience. And I think it's more valuable than adding another project, especially in a draft that, to my knowledge, is less top-heavy and more just kind of has a lot of good players in the middle. Um, so I think you can hit two birds with one stone there, get a good player in the draft, but still have that playoff experience. So to me, that's that's what I'd call a success. Yeah, my bar is a little lower than yours. Just win more games than you lose. Play 500 ball. Whether that takes them to the playoffs... Uh, uh, first round matchup with the Golden State Warriors, presumably. Yep. Great. But I think it says a lot to, you know, we saw what type of effect it can have last season under Sam Mitchell. I mean, the Wolves played great during the yeah. second half of the season. I don't think they went, I think they were just under 500, but they played yep. Yep. A, a lot better than they did in the first half of the season. So winning more games than you lose, shocker. Maybe they'll learn, tip, you know, Tibbs system or something like that. There's, there's hope and, you know, in what you're saying. Even if you end up the ninth seed, you came close. I think that would generate some momentum. I, I think it's a very feasible thing to ask. Yeah. Based on, you know, especially the way they've played lately. They've, they've picked it up a little bit. So his name is Tom Schreier. Follow him on Twitter at T-S-C-H-R-E-I-E-R-3. My name is Zachary Bennett at Zachary BD on Twitter. Be sure to follow the Locked on Wolves podcast at Locked on Wolves. Uh, tune in for a conversation like this. Uh, every day, part of the Lockdown Wolves podcast. Tom is a frequent contributor. We have, uh, Britt, we've had Britt Robeson, Minpost, formerly of Sports Illustrated, and a cycling crew of guests come in for, for fun basketball talk and insightful basketball talk as well. So for Tom, for, for myself, so long. One of these teams that is in the kind of realm for eight is going to get hot. They're going to, they're going to link out eight of ten 
And that's going to change everything out of that group, whether it's the Pelicans who we previewed with Jake Madison before or whether it's the Nuggets who we're going to hear from Adam here shortly or the Mavs maybe even. Uh, someone's Maybe the Kings, though the Rudy Gay injury is tough. Uh, someone's going to get hot. Maybe, maybe it's that Wolves team. Uh, right there. Uh, Harrison and Anthony do awesome work with Locked on Lakers. They've had marquee guests. They have rocked the world. They're an iTunes top 200 podcast all the time. So let's get our midseason report from Locked on Lakers. Welcome, everybody, to the Locked on Lakers podcast. We are here to help uh, David, the podfather, out with his uh, midseason report podcast here on the Western Conference edition. Uh, I am Anthony Irwin. I am, as always, joined by Harrison Fagan. You can find us on all the places that, that all the other shows are, are can be found. We're going to answer a few questions about the way this season has gone so far for the Lakers. Uh, first one I'll start with is, what is the number one storyline of your season? Harrison, it's Ivica Zubats, right? I would say it's our Lord and Savior, Ivica Zubats. He had his first career double-double against the Nuggets tonight, but it's only because Luke Walton finally unleashed him. I think he probably would be averaging 20 and 20 if he was given like 30 minutes a game. <laughs> That's basically <laughs> what his per 36 numbers are, right? So It probably is. probably not far off. <laughs> it, no, it, in all seriousness, I think like the buzzword of this season is rebuilding. Mm-hmm. Or maybe yeah. inconsistency? Yes, that's the big one. Uh, it, at the beginning of the year, when we first did this, it was, you know, can they sustain this ten, their 10-10 ten and 10 start at the time? And can they can, can they sustain that, what they were doing throughout the season? We have found out... The answer was no with a vengeance. <laughs> yeah. We have found out with, uh, with all kinds of, as sure as anything you can be sure of, that, that no, they could not. Uh, it's been kind of a bummer. It's been kind of a, a kick to the nether regions, but uh, five and twenty-one since that start. Yeah, oh, man, that has been rough. Yeah. All right, let's go ahead and move on to the second one. For me, I guess if I were to pick a number one storyline, like you said, it was the inconsistency. The second one here is who is better than you thought, and who has been less good than you expected. Uh, I'll start this one since you did that one. Who is better than I thought? I mean, obviously, it's Zubots. Like, this is an actual serious response because he was kind of a nobody heading into the year. But I'm actually going to go in a different direction. I'm going to say Brandon Ingram has been better than I thought he would be. Uh, he was disappointing to start the year, and I found it uh, impressive that he was able to bounce back from that and show things on the offensive end that we didn't really think he had, you know, running the point heading into the year. And then defensively, he's been a lot better than I thought he was going to be as a rookie. Uh, Harrison, who do you think has been less good than you expected? Honestly, it's D'Angelo Russell. And this is going to come off as me hating on him or people are saying, going to say like Lakers people have turned on Russell. And that's not the case at all. I just thought he was going to be really, really good this year. I thought the whole offense was going to run through him. I thought this was kind of going to be his breakout campaign being unleashed in in Luke's system. Uh, But that just hasn't been the case. And so I think he's been a little bit – he's been fine. He hasn't been breakout like I expected him to be. Yeah, I think fine is a good word for it. Third question, are you buyers or sellers at the trade deadline? I think Would anyone they, like a lightly used Lou Williams? <laughs> I think they're going to be comatose at the trade deadline. Is that, sure. is that a fair – they're stayers at the deadline. 
Yeah, I don't think that they I I don't see a big move on the horizon, but I think if a team came in and they were offering an asset for a Nick Young or for a Lou Williams, I think the team at this point might go ahead and make that deal. It was a little bit different when Lou and Young, Nick were setting the world on fire, but that's not the case anymore, and so they might be a little bit more willing to move them now and not think that that would dr- as dramatically alter their culture. Yep, I, that's a good point. And then I would also add, this has been kind of a, a popular sentiment, especially after losses, in which D'Angelo Russell didn't play as much as people would like him to play. Would Lou Williams getting move open up more minutes for Russell? And, you know, he's not playing, I don't think, 30 minutes yet a game this year. No. Uh, and, and, uh, I, from that standpoint, I actually think that's a, that's a decent reason to move him. In a vacuum, but one would also hope that your coach and your front office would be on on decent enough footing that you wouldn't have to protect the coach from himself as and you would you would you would essentially be doing by moving Lou for that for that reason. If we're being frank, you would also hope that your second overall pick could outplay Lou Williams. Yeah, also very very good point, and he and. Again, to be frank, and hey, Lou, Lou's been great. D'Angelo's been fine. There have been a couple games where D'Angelo has sat, and I thought he should have went back in. Mm-hmm. But you know, ultimately, it does come down to that. He has to completely out. He has to leave no question that he is better to be out there on the floor than Lou Williams. All right. So, depending on the answer to number three, whether or not the Lakers I think are we kind of answered that. Yeah. Well, I, I the other player I'd be willing to move is Tarek Black because of Zubats's. Because I don't of think, his steps I'm, forward. I don't think you're getting anything for Tarek Black. Oh uh, yeah. I mean I am just saying you, you kinda call, you ask around, hey, do you need a do you need a, a an active body to come off of the bench and you see if you can get, you know, maybe a conditional second rounder, uh a, a late second rounder for him. But again, like the, the Lakers all their assets right now that people would actually want are pieces that they, they don't want to move right now. So that makes it tough. Yeah. Number five. What is the key in the second half of the season to call this year a success? Other than 30 minutes a game for Zubats. <laughs> I thought you were going to say Russell. Wow, but that I... was weird that David worded it like that. That was, that was an interestingly <laughs> phrased question. I guess he's a believer too. As you said that, I thought to myself, okay, yeah, maybe over 30 minutes a game for D'Angelo Russell. But nope, you went Zubats. <laughs> you went Most you went... promising Lakers young player. <laughs> uh, so to call this season a success... After the All-Star break, I'd like to see the Lakers play maybe a shade below 500 ball. You know, maybe a few games, maybe, you know, five games off of the pace of 500 basketball. They're going to be playing a lot fewer games in the second half of the season than everybody else in the league. So they'll have proper rest between those games. You would think that as Luke has has laid his foundation with this young core, that maybe they'll start to take hold on both sides of the ball and they'll get better as the year progresses. That would be my hope. Is that you know they're they're somewhere between five games and five uh, five games of five hundred basketball to to finish the year. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's fair. I, I, I 
would call it less a success based on record, and I would just say that the young guys should be getting minutes, and they should be looking promising in those minutes. And whether or not that ultimately ends up with the Lakers, their main issue has been defense. So I don't know if that fixes the Lakers' defense and allows them to win a bunch more games, but I think that you want to see those flashes from the guys. And just so that everybody knows who, you know, if you're new to this podcast via uh, David's big, you know, midseason report, the Lakers have top three protection on their pick. So for those who were saying, well, wait, why would you actually root for wins for this Lakers team? The, the, the chances of them keeping the pick mathematically aren't that great. So you may as well root for wins and root for progress for, with this young core. So yeah, that, that also bears mentioning. That'll do it for this uh, portion of the midseason report. This was a lot of fun. Thank you to David for, for putting this together. Thank you, everybody, for listening to us. Again, you can find us everywhere that you find all of the other shows. We are your daily source for Lakers news if you are a Laker fan. Uh, I promise I'll, I'll try to spray Harrison with cold water when he starts talking too breathlessly about, about Ivica Zubats. No, no response there, huh? No. <laughs> Talk to everybody soon. <laughs> oh, the love of Zubat. Interesting trade deadline for the Lakers. Really interesting trade deadline for the Lakers. I'm curious to see where Mitch Kupchak goes. They have all that internal stuff going on uh, as well. Today's show is brought to you by Warby Parker. Warby Parker has revolutionized the glasses world. My family is a huge Warby Parker fan. My son, who's 14, just turned out he needed glasses. So what did it do? We did the Warby Parker try-on program. So you get five pairs of glasses. You try them on for five days. There's no obligation to buy. And then the shipping's free. And... Then you choose which ones you want. Maybe it's one pair. Maybe it's two. Uh, the glasses start at $95, including prescription lenses. Lenses are anti-glare, anti-scratch. Uh, every pair you buy, a pair is distributed to someone in need. That's what's so cool about Warby Parker. Not only are they revolutionizing the glasses industry so that you can get decent pricing on fabulous uh Eyeglassware, but every time you buy a pair, they're distributing it to someone else uh, across the world. You can do it now on the Warby Parker iTunes app if you'd like to. Uh, still use the URL uh, warbyparker.com slash locked for the home try-on and check it out. Uh, I've got my Warby Parkers. My wife is everywhere in our house. You see the Warby Parker uh, glasses case. We're big fans. I think I've told the story before. Jack A. Meal is the writer of the Nick on Showtime. Great friend of mine. He's like the he like a few years ago took me to Warby Parker in New York to show me how incredible this place was. I mean, these guys have really got when you started to become a Warby Parker person, the loyalty you have to them because the experience is so awesome is just something where you do what Jack did. You take me to lunch in New York and then walk me across town so I can go to the Warby Parker store. Well, now the Warby Parker store is there for you online. Warbyparker.com, promo then locked on the back end of it, and you will find out that you get a great experience with Warby Parker. Warbyparker.com slash locked. Let's continue, and uh, this was recorded by Jason Ross, who does the studio hosting for the radio on the Kings, does a nice, really, really good show uh, with Sacramento before the Rudy Gay injury. So this was recorded the night before the Rudy Gay injury, so please be aware of that. Hey there, Jason Ross here from Locked on Kings. Glad to be a part of the Locked on Network, courtesy of David Lockman. I hope you get a chance to check out our podcast daily 
everything going on with the Sacramento Kings, and it's always an adventure. I promise you that. So hopefully you check it out. We've got great interviews, recaps, analysis, um, production, all of it that's going on on a daily basis here on Locked on Kings. A lot of connection to guys in the NBA with 20-plus years of covering the league. So hopefully you get a chance to check us out on Locked on Kings via iTunes, Audio Boom, Stitcher, and all the regular places you can find out anything on the Locked On Network. So now to hit the questions kind of asked to us of us on our midseason report, I'm going to start here with our number one comment. What is the number one storyline of the Sacramento Kings season? And to me, the biggest question all the way long, all along, was can the Sacramento Kings end their decade-plus-long playoff drought? I think that's clearly what the front office has been targeting. They're trying to get in. That I think they would deem as a success. That's the front office's opinion. Not mine per se, but that's what they want. And just for some perspective, the last time the Kings were in the postseason, they traded for Ron Artest that season. They still had guys like Sharif Adorheem, Bonzi Wells, Mike Bibby, Brad Miller, Kevin Martin, and Rick Adelman was still the coach. That means Musselman, Theus, Nat, Westfall, Smart, Malone, Corbin, Carl, and now Jaeger. That is nine coaches since their last trip to the postseason. Two ownerships, three GMs, a near relocation to either Anaheim and Seattle, and now finally a permanent downtown arena that the Kings now call home, the Golden One Center. And here we are. So I think their number one goal and number one storyline from the get-go was to end their season, or decade-long, excuse me, playoff drought. And the Kings somehow, someway are in that mix as we approach the halfway point of getting into the top eight. But it hasn't because been because they've played great basketball. It's because the bottom of the West has left the door wide open for teams like New Orleans, Portland, Sacramento, Denver, and everybody basically at the bottom of the West. All right, so who's better than you thought and who has been lesser of a player than I expected? A couple of answers here, and I'm going to target the veterans. A couple of veterans that I think have served nice roles for Coach Yeager. I thought that answer was going to be guys like Aaron Aflalo and Matt Barnes. That's who I thought I'd be talking about. Instead, I'm going to target Garrett Temple, Ty Lawson, and Anthony Tolliver. These three veterans have done a nice job for the Sacramento Kings. Ty Lawson kind of getting one more opportunity to make it in the league. The Kings kept him. He's started the beginning part of the season, now has come off the bench, and has really found his groove the last 25 games or so, and has been a nice surprise for the Kings. Garrett Tolliver, or excuse me, Garrett Temple, has been so versatile in his defending of the best perimeter guys on the opposing teams. He always plays in the clutch, crunch time, and... He uh, can play multiple positions, and it's just been a, a great professional that has been added to this organization. And the same can be said for Anthony Tolliver. None of these guys are amazing high-level talent players. They're more role players. But based on the team's roster, they've been asked to play a lot of minutes, meaningful minutes. And between Tolliver, Temple, and Lawson, they've all supplied some really nice things. Now, on the negative side, Darren Collison, a guy I thought had to be the third best player based on the roster. You go, you count on Cousins. Rudy Gay is the second best. And Collison in the contract year has been a good king, but just hasn't really taken over that starting point guard role. And the knock on him is uh, he's probably a really good backup in this league. I thought he could be a good starter because he has been a good starter over his years in Sacramento. Just having a down year, I would say, for the Kings, especially in a contract year. And then the two young guys that they've drafted recently, Ben McLemore, fourth year, given every opportunity to have an impact, has not. And Willie Cauley-Stein in year two now has been coached by George Carl and Dave Yeager, one veteran coach, one guy still in the kind of the beginning part of his coaching career, and neither one seems to like what Willie Cauley-Stein provides. So I'd say Collison, McLemore, and Willie Cauley-Stein have been uh, the most disappointing so far. 
Now, the next topic, are the Kings buyers or sellers at the trade deadline? This one couldn't be more in flux because I go back to my first point. The number one storyline is to get into the playoffs. Well, they're still in that race, which hits right at that core of that number one storyline, but that could change soon. The Kings, as we hit the midway point, have going to wrap up their season-long seven-game homestand. They've been awful on it. Then they have a season-long eight-game road trip that takes them through places like Memphis and Houston and Cleveland, Chicago, some very difficult games coming up. I personally think they could get pushed so far behind that maybe it makes this in flux. So buyers or sellers, I would think they would lean more towards buying and try to make this team one last push because they're still in the race. But if it if it gets bad, really bad, and they get into a, a funk where they win one or two on that road trip and they're now three or four or five games back of that eight spot with 35 or so to go, I just don't think it's is as, as appealing to become buyers in that situation. So, But if they do that, the next kind of option here is what would they do? If they are going to be buyers, what kind of trade would that be? Well, I think they got three options. They can go the big move kind of a medium-sized move and a small move. We'll start with the smaller move, less sexy. I mean, moving guys like Willie Cauley-Stein or Ben McLemore, guys that aren't going to fetch you a lot in return. Some of the veterans they have, a, a Matt Barnes, Omri Caspi, those kind of moves that, you know, they could help a, a playoff team that wants some additional player, Costa Kufis, but I don't see that netting, you know, something huge in return. The medium move is Rudy Gay. That's been a, talked about a lot in Sacramento. Moving him because... He's a free agent at the end of the year. Has already expressed a desire to play for a winner and not sign his extension. So he likely is not going to be a king. So he's a guy they can move. And then the giant move still that's out there, it's the elephant in the room, is is overhauling the organization and moving DeMarcus Cousins. And that would be the biggest, biggest move. Uh, something I've been leaning towards on my podcast, I think that's probably the long-term answer for this team. He's a great young player, but they haven't won with him. And I, I think that could be the giant move. So moving Cousins, giant move, medium move, rooting, moving Rudy, smaller move, moving some of the veteran pieces. So the key to the second half of the season to call this a success, <clears throat> the organization would tell you it's making the eight and making a postseason and getting two home games, even if that's a, a four game in and out against the Warriors or Spurs or whoever that might be. That's how I think they would deem it. I will tell you this, the worst case scenario that I've been painting for the Kings is to threaten for that spot, get all the way near the end, and just miss and never play the kids. They've got three draft picks, three rookies that haven't really played at all that have been in the D-League more so than the big club. So I think that's that would be a bad scenario for the Kings to flirt with the eight seed, fall short, and never see the young kids play and still have Rudy, still have DeMarcus, and never moving some of your assets. So uh, the key to making the second half of success of the season, I guess, would be to improve at home, certainly, uh, win some more road games, and lock down that eight seed in the Western Conference. Well, obviously, lots are diff- is different there. Do they suddenly, do the Kings decide they're not going for it anymore? They're plus minus without Rudy Gay is bad. Is this the impetus that makes the DeMarcus Cousins deal go through? Where and how do the Kings react uh, if, in fact, this is an Achilles tendon, which has not been confirmed but is pretty seems pretty certain as we're recording this? Maybe the most impressively kind of surprise team of this league 
so far with all the injuries and everything they've done and just the team you admire the most uh, this season is the Memphis Grizzlies. Uh, Peter Edmondson does our Memphis Grizzlies show. This team just wins close game after close game. Uh, despite Chandler Parsons never being right, Mike Conley being out, they are still a playoff team. And Peter breaks it down for us with a midseason report from Locked on Grizzlies. Hi there, this is Peter Edmiston with Locked on Grizzlies, bringing you the Memphis Grizzlies midseason report here on the Locked on Podcast Network. And for the Grizzlies, it is, as ever, a bit of a confusing but mostly optimistic profile that they've put together over the uh, first half of the season with some key, key wins, some very impressive performances, and some baffling lowlights uh, with a lot of injury trouble in between. Some of the questions that uh, we had going into the season about the Grizzlies have been answered in the positive, one of those being the return of Marc Gasol. Going into the season, he, of course, uh, dealt with a broken navicular bone in his foot. That was one that, that's an injury that has uh, historically been uh, career-ending or career-shortening for everyone that's had it, uh, but Marcus Gasol, except for Michael Jordan, I should say, I should point out, Michael Jordan had it and uh, turned out okay, but uh, he was the rare exception as he's been the exception in pretty much everything. Well, I think you can just about add Marcus Gasol to that exception list halfway through the season. He has come back, he is playing slightly uh, more minutes per game than uh, last year. He is averaging career high in scoring, in usage, in assists, in assist rate, uh, career low in turnovers. All these things are uh, incredibly positive. He's added a three-point shot to his repertoire, and he's uh, very much in contention for a starting spot in the Western Conference All-Star race. So that that question very much answered in the affirmative and in a way that probably was beyond any reasonable expectation. Mike Conley, uh, as he begins year one of his NBA record $153 million contract, uh, that is, uh, he's a little less... Sure, just because he had such a, an injury problem, he had a broken back in the middle of this season. He's had a toe issue as well, uh, as long as dealing with little bumps and bruises along the way. And he struggled to recover from that back injury. For uh, He was out for a nine-game stretch, and then when he returned, uh, it took him another probably two or three weeks to really get back closer to what you would expect to see from him. But uh, over the last uh, two weeks or so, he's pretty well good to go, and uh, he has improved. When he's played and when he's played uh, in a healthy way, he's been very effective for the Grizzlies. Both Marcus Gasol and Mike Conley have played well when they've had the opportunity to be healthy and play together. Uh, Chandler Parsons, another injury problem. Two knee surgeries um, that have really been debilitating for him for a long, long period of time. He missed about eight months in total, uh, came back towards the end of uh, November, and uh, was not really able to do a whole lot. Uh, in that stretch, then he suffered a bone bruise to the other knee and missed a few more games, came back, and has only recently started to look like himself, but he's still a long, long way from being 100%. He's on a minutes restriction of under 20 minutes now, and that will continue for the foreseeable future. So the big three that uh, Grizzly fans would be talking about, Mike Conley, Marcus Gasol, Chandler Parsons have, uh, there's been one big positive, one mostly positive, and one mostly negative mixed in. Uh, Tony Allen is having a uh, career year at, at the age of 35. He just turned 35, but he's putting up um, bigger numbers than we've seen minutes-wise, points-wise. He's been a bigger part of the offense. He's playing backup point guard now for the Grizzlies. Um, as David Fisdale, who is uh, another question mark going into the season, how would he coach? He's been very aggressive 
uh, in the way that he wants his team to defend. He's been very aggressive. Some of the moves that he's made, including moving Zach Randolph to the bench, uh, a role that has mostly suited uh, the aging Zach Randolph pretty well uh, throughout the, this uh, this season. Now there have been a few little bumps along the way, some moments when uh, Zach was not particularly thrilled, particularly when he didn't finish games, um, but. That has more or less been ironed out, and, and things have gone well. Uh, David Fisdale has been very creative with the use of Marcus Gasol. He's been very creative with the use of space and generating more three-point attempts for the Grizzlies, which is something that uh, both Dave Yeager and Lionel Hollins really struggle to do with a similar core group. Um, and the Grizzlies use that to great effect in a big comeback win against Golden State, big comeback win against Houston, both of those on the road. They've beaten the Rockets at FedEx Forum. They've beaten the Jazz, a very impressive uh, win for them. You know, they, they've beaten every other team. They beat the Clippers out in Staples, a full-strength Clippers team, on a last-second Marcus Gasol corner three-pointer. You know, they've, done, uh, they've beaten a lot of elite teams. They've beaten every single playoff team that they've played, other than the Spurs, and they just haven't played the Spurs yet, but they've beaten everybody else uh, in in the Western Conference playoff position. So they are capable on their night of beating anybody, but they've also lost at home to Sacramento. They've, they just recently lost to a not full-strength Bulls team without you know, Dwayne Wade and uh, Nikola Mirotic and coming on uh, the night of a second night of a back-to-back. They lost uh, at Orlando by a huge, huge margin. Yeah, they, they are 7-9 and nine in their last 16 ball games. They they are a baffling team because they have such positive possibilities. They are kind of actually playing a little bit better overall than a lot of Grizzly fans probably would have expected at this point, but the lows and their inability to defend at times for a team that is so physical and so tough and is so tough-minded, they just seem to switch off, Uh, and it's it's a difficult it's a difficult puzzle to figure out. It's difficult for David Fisdale to figure out, much less for the players and for the fans. So second half of the year, I would imagine the Grizzlies will be searching for consistency. I would imagine the Grizzlies will be searching for uh, more surety in their roles. The, the wing spots are still very much up for grabs, especially because Chandler Parsons has not been able to come back uh, and be full strength. So those are things that they're going to have to tweak. They're obviously going to be keeping an eye on, on Marcus Saul as he heads toward the one-year anniversary on February 8th of his injury. Once he gets to February 8th, the trainers have said he's full strength. They will not be uh, – they feel like he's out of the woods in terms of a potential you know, re-injury. So he is very close. He's not quite there yet, but he's very, very close. And so if he can continue to have this kind of a season, then that would be a huge boost for the Grizzlies, and it looks as though they're going to be fighting it out with the Jazz, with the Clippers, and with the Thunder for those uh, spots four through seven in the Western Conference playoff. They're in no danger of winning the West, and they're in no danger of dropping out of the playoff picture altogether. So it's all about getting the right spot and maybe potentially sneaking in home court advantage. Hope you enjoyed this look at the Grizzlies at the midseason mark. Again, if you want to find out more about the Grizzlies, please feel free to subscribe. Check out Locked on Grizzlies here on the Locked on Podcast Network. Thanks so much for listening. Once again, my name is Peter Edmiston. We've got two more left. The Nuggets and the Mavericks are right there. Thank you to Peter and Locked on Grizzlies. I do want to remind you of some of our other sponsors. Indochino.com, the suit company, is a sponsor of Locked on NBA. Your promo code for Indochino is uh, Locked and Blue Apron, you can get three free meals at Blue Apron. This promo code is a little bit different, though, so make sure uh, you remember the promo code is LOCK, without an E, NBA, LOCK, 
NBA on Blue Apron. So thanks to Indochino and Blue Apron for their support as well. The Nuggets are currently in the playoffs and I think may stay there. And Adam does a great job with Locked On Nuggets. It's one of our biggest growing shows. They've got the hot, one of the hottest players in the league and Nikolai uh, Jokic. Let's see what Adam has to tell us about Locked On Nuggets. What is up, everybody? This is Adam Mades with the Locked On Nuggets podcast, also the editor-in-chief of DenverStiffs.com, the largest Denver Nuggets blog on the web. And I'm here to recap the Nuggets season so far. Uh, the Nuggets entered the season with hopes of making the playoffs. Last year, they had a very surprising year, winning 33 games, uh, seven more than they were projected in, in most Vegas spots. Nikola Jokic had an incredible rookie year and measured uh, as a historically productive rookie by almost every advanced statistical category, including RPM, PER, and win shares, and box plus minus. But he did it with playing uh, just around 20 minutes per game. Moutier finished the 2016 on a high note after struggling in the first half of the season, but the final months he cut his turnover rate in half, he upped his field goal percentage by 10%, and he looked like he was ready to take a leap in year two. Finally, Yusef Nurkic over the summer, who had a great rookie season two years ago and then battled health uh, uh, and, and recover, slow recovery from knee surgery, he uh, came into the season at his slimmest weight and in his best shape that he had in his two seasons and looked ready to make a leap. <clears throat> Despite Nikola Jokic's career year as a rookie at the center position, Malone started the season by moving Jokic to power forward so that he could pair him alongside Yusef Nurkic in sort of a twin tower lineup. The team really dominated the offensive glass with that lineup, but they struggled to score efficiently. In particular, I thought Emmanuel Moutier and Nikola Jokic uh, looked bad uh, through the first eight games, which is how long they sort of gave this experiment with two, to- uh, two centers. Jokic wasn't quick enough on the defensive end to guard power forwards. In the opening game, Anthony Davis went for 50 points, mostly on Nikola Jokic, who was just too slow to move his feet on the perimeter with such quick players. Al Farouk Aminu also had a really nice game against Jokic, uh, who just couldn't keep up with his foot speed. And then Emmanuel Moutier really struggled with turnovers, turning the ball over at a rate even higher than he did in his rookie season. A lot of that probably having to do with the fact that Moutier's best skill is getting into the paint. And with Nurkic in there and Jokic in there, there just wasn't a whole lot of spacing in the paint and a lot of room for him to kind of turn the corner and collapse the defense. So Moutier really struggled and the team offensively really struggled. The only player that really looked good over that stretch was Yusef Nurkic, who benefited from oftentimes getting a mismatch down at the center position if a big switched on to Nikola Jokic. And he really played maybe the best eight games of his career over that eight-game stretch, even though the Nuggets were struggling so much. And then there were injuries to Gary Harris, who hurt his groin in the preseason and missed the first uh, several several weeks. He came back and then rolled an ankle and was immediately out, so he missed most of that stretch. Will Barton also injured, rolled an ankle, and missed a lot of that stretch. So the Nuggets were forced to play a lot of minutes with Jamal Murray and uh, uh, Malik Beasley and Jameer Nelson at shooting guard. Not an optimal lineup for them, especially right out the gate when those when the young guys had no experience. The team went 3-5 and five 
and that included three losses by three or less. Uh, they led in two of those games in the final seconds, once losing at the buzzer uh, to Memphis despite being up, and then once being up two points with eight seconds left before Damian Lillard hit a game-tying shot to send it in overtime. He would, in overtime, hit a game-winning shot in the last possession as well. So the Nuggets went 3-5, and five, but could have easily been 5-3 and three over that stretch. Nonetheless, they didn't look great, and Coach Malone decided to change the starting lineup. He brought Kenneth, uh, Kenneth Freed and Yusef Nurkic both really wanted to start and made it known to everyone on the team that they wanted to start. Nikola Jokic volunteered to come off of the bench despite being one of the Nuggets' most important players. And so uh, the lineup of Freed and Nurkic became the front court. Unfortunately, that lineup created many of the same problems that the Jokic and Nurkic lineup did and that there wasn't a lot of room to operate for Moutier to get into the paint. And Moutier continued, in particular, continued to struggle. The Nuggets also changed their pick-and-roll coverage in that stretch. Where they were guarding the pick-and-roll more two-on-two, they began to bring a lot of help side uh, from the corners and from the weak side to prevent points in the paint. Unfortunately... That The effect of that defense stymied points in the paint but gave up a lot of wide-open shots, and the Nuggets' off, uh, defensive rating continued to plummet. They went 6-11 and over that stretch and really looked bad. From where they were losing close games, they started to just be blown out for that middle stretch of the year. Finally, on December 15th, the Nuggets put Nikola Jokic back into the starting lineup and used Wilson Chandler at six foot eight as sort of a stretch power forward along to him. On that night, Gary Harris also returned from the injury that had forced him to miss most of the season. And the Nuggets scored 132 points against Portland en route to a double-digit win, and a new era was born with the Denver Nuggets. Nikola Jokic in particular stood out that night, dropping five assists, including one of the best assists I've ever seen from any player, a wraparound no-look pass on the break to Kenneth Reed for the easy layup. And the Nuggets' style that night changed. They decided to start playing smaller, played through Nikola Jokic a lot more, where he was getting maybe 25, 30 touches a night. He started getting 40, 45 touches and was the focal point of the offense, kind of playing a sort of unconventional point center role. And the Nuggets went on a nice run. They won five of their first seven games with that lineup, scoring over 100 points in every single game. The defense did get even worse over that stretch as you sacrifice scoring, uh, defense for scoring, but they did have the number two offense over that stretch, scoring 115.5 points per 100 possessions, better than Cleveland, Houston, and Golden State. And that's now a 19-game sample size, so a pretty large sample size. Unfortunately, their defense has looked really bad, and they've relied on outgunning teams for most of the year. It's made for a really exciting uh, basketball, but unfortunately doesn't look like a sustainable one from a, from a winning standpoint, although it might be enough to get them in the eight seed. As it stands, the Nuggets are in the eight seed, and they're looking to hold off teams like Portland, Sacramento, and New Orleans. But in order to do that, they'll have to see a little, at least a minor improvement of their defense. If they can become not the worst defense, but maybe the 20th best defense, I think they'll be a lock to get the eight seed. Thanks a lot, guys. We'll talk to you soon. Boy, is the trade deadline going to be wildly interesting with those teams around the eight? The Pelicans, the Blazers, the Nuggets, Sacramento, all around the eight seed, 
all could make major mammoth trade deadline type moves. Be curious to see what happens. Rick Carlisle's kept the Mavericks above water. They're actually playing pretty darn well as they get healthier. Maybe they're the team that makes the eight seed run. Uh, Mike Marshall does our Locked on Mavericks, and that's the final stop on our midseason report. All right, I'm Mike Marshall of Locked on Mavericks here for your Dallas Mavericks uh, midseason report. You can play the highway to hell sound effect or whatever you're into at this point because it has not been very pretty. Um, 13 and 27 uh, on the season right now, heading into their 41st game tonight um, with the Bulls. The Mavericks can't rebound. They can't defend a three. Uh, they don't run at a fun pace. And for most teams, if you play at a slow pace, it's uh, in turn to play really good defense. That is not the Mavericks style right now. They allow 40% from the three-point line for their opponents. So they just play slow, so the point totals are lower, and it's a really ugly basketball game. Um, the number one storyline for the Mavericks thus far in the season is injuries. It's got to be injuries, right? Um, Dirk missed a substantial amount of time with an Achilles injury. Uh, Darren Williams as well. Bogut has missed a uh, substantial time. And then J.J. Barea, uh, who people might not think is that important to this team, but honestly, he is. Uh, I'm playing pick and pop with Dirk Nowitzki um, in certain stretches of the game. He's had an Achilles calf thing injury um, as well. So, Injuries are the number one storyline, which your season probably isn't going super well, if that's the number one storyline in your season. And the other part of that is how tough their early schedule was uh, through like the first six weeks of the season. In conjunction with those injuries, uh, it would have almost been better for a, in terms of a, a better, <laughs> quote unquote, in terms of a better uh, draft pick, if the toughest part of the, part of the schedule landed later, as in like late December or January, whenever the Mavericks actually got healthy, they would have been playing those uh, those better teams. We could have racked up quite a few more losses and thus gotten a better draft pick. But here we are. The Mavericks are basically a 500 team since the beginning of December. At one point, they were 3-15 and 15 while everybody was injured, and uh, Salah Mejri was getting a lot of starts. Seth Curry got to roll in there, uh, and he even battled some injuries. But some really weird lineups, and I'm sure it tested the the gumption of a one, Rick Carlisle. Probably the toughest season he's had to deal with, quite honestly. Harrison Barnes has been a revelation, quite honestly. I think everybody kind of slow-played or downplayed their hand on Harrison Barnes. Uh, I'm fine admitting that I was wrong about Harrison Barnes at the beginning of the season and that my perception of him has done a complete 180. Um, and he's consistent as the day is long. Uh, 20 points, you know, 6 to 7 rebounds, shooting north of 45% from the field. That's Harrison Barnes in a month. He'll do it for months at a time. And it's pretty impressive for a dude that we didn't expect a ton out of. And a lot of it happens with him playing the four, which will be a recurring theme of Harrison Barnes needing to play the four position every single night and start at the four uh, for the betterment of this team going forward and moving Dirk Nowitzki to the bench. But we'll get to that here in a minute. Biggest disappointment of the season, um, obviously health. Uh, is up there, but uh, if we're going to pinpoint some names, let's go with uh, Andrew Bogut. Haven't really loved Andrew Bogut's style of play, his ability to stay healthy and on the court for, you know, just let's just do it for a week. Let's just get uh, one week under our belt, and then let's move forward. But his overall play, his defensive intensity on a consistent basis, haven't loved. Um, he'll step in front of some dudes, take some charges, he'll throw some dirty screens, but on a possession-to-possession basis, haven't loved it. Wes Matthews has been 
really hot for stretches and then just disastrous for weeks at a time. His peaks and valleys are like something I've never seen from a player that uh, that has worn a Mavericks uniform. When he's bad, don't expect anything, any kind of contribution from him. When he's good, good Lord, it's fun to watch him shoot threes. So those are some of the disappointments. Uh, the Mavericks are definitely sellers at the trade deadline. There's no way around it. If anybody would like a slightly used Andrew Bogut with a lot of miles on it, if anybody would like a, uh, a rented Darren Williams or even a Wes Matthews, if you're interested in that type of player, give us a call, please. We'll take just about anything from a second-round pick to a young project player. Let's get some deals done. How about that? I think just about anybody on the Mavericks roster that isn't named Harrison Barnes or Dirk Nowitzki is up for sale if you want to make a call on it. Let's, uh, let's get some picks flying around. Let's get some younger players uh, in the room. Um, there shouldn't be any player that is untouchable at this moment. I would like to keep Harrison Barnes, but uh, honestly, whenever you get down to it, I don't know if the next good Mavericks team um, will be with Harrison Barnes under this current contract. So that's the pickle we live in right now. What you need for the future, you need a young point guard with some kind of uh, dynamic ability to him. Um, you need a center uh, that can step in there and consistently play and stay healthy and be a defensive force and maybe uh, run some pick and roll and some rim runs with a young point guard. Um, I would assume with a point guard-heavy draft, that's the way you go with your very high draft pick, which right now is going to settle about, uh, I think, top five at this moment. They could work their way out of that. But in a very point guard-heavy draft, I'd like to see them take one one of these elite point guards that has a lot of talent and maybe go uh, big game fishing with a restricted free agency offer on a center, maybe even Nerland's Noel moving forward. Uh, the second half of the season will be successful if they get as high of a draft pick as possible without flat-out tanking and telling some of these dudes that this half season of their career just doesn't matter to us as a front office. Like, you can't tell Harrison Barnes, who's playing his ass off every night, that this half season under this new contract it doesn't matter to us. We're going to lose games. You can't tell Dirk Nowitzki your final one of your final uh, half seasons of maybe what what one season left that he has. It doesn't matter to us. So you have to be competitive and and compete in enough games and play well enough, uh, maybe a couple times a week to keep the guys engaged. But honestly, what's going to help this rebuild, this uh, you know cheat of a rebuild, this quick rebuild that they're trying to pull off, um, the most would be the highest pick possible. It's hard to say that as a fan. I don't want my team to lose. I don't want my team to be the laughing stock of the NBA. But the way the narrow little path that you have to bounce back and not be a laughing stock next season is draft an elite point guard, that's step one, and then sign a center of some of some consequence. Uh, moving Andrew Bogut, moving Darren Williams uh, would be a huge jump start in a rebuild, getting some kind of pick, some kind of asset for those dudes, convincing Dirk that he's best coming off the bench when all the statistics say so, all of the lineups say so, all of his chemistry with J.J. Barea says so. Uh, Dirk needs to be coming off the bench. Just imagine your backup unit on your team running out there and having to, to defend the Dirk Nowitzki, J.J. Barea pick and pop. How many teams have depth uh, coming off their bench that could do that? Um, and the other thing that's, I guess, positives rolling forward is that our bench is basically solidified with younger dudes, with um, you know guys that should be on the incline that haven't peaked yet, and Dwight Powell, Justin Anderson, Seth Curry, Dorian Finney-Smith, 
who has played some really important minutes and played well whenever he's gotten time. But the most important thing that the Mavericks can do in the second half of this season and moving forward is the commitment to Harrison Barnes and Harrison, Harrison Barnes playing the four in particular and Harrison Barnes realizing his superpowers. Because I feel like every week he does something new. He starts knocking down more threes. He starts working better in isolation. He starts uh, dominating in post-up possessions. He's been special, and he has to continue to be special. Is there another tier? Did he find this and that there's you know one, one above it, perhaps? So there's your Dallas Mavericks halfway or mid-season reports. I'm Mike Marshall for Locked On Mavericks. And I would assume that Harrison Barnes does have another level. I think when guys get this exposure and they have success like this, they just keep growing. It's what we've seen in Utah uh, with Gordon Hayward. That is the end of the midseason reports. Make sure you have subscribed to your favorite Locked On podcast, your favorite team's Locked On podcast, and get it every day on your podcatcher, whether it's Android or on iTunes or however you do it. Support our sponsors. SeatGeek gives you the best tickets way to buy tickets. The promo code is LOCKED. WarbyParker.com slash LOCKED for your Try on free try on five glasses at home. It's a wonderful experience, no obligation. And also Blue Apron, lock without the E NBA, lock without the E NBA, and Indochino. The promo code is locked for your made to measure suits. Thanks to all our sponsors. Thanks to the host of the Lockdown Podcast Networks, and thanks to you for tuning in today to Locked On NBA. George Carl is scheduled next week, and hopefully the coach returns as well for you on Locked On NBA, part of the Locked On Podcast Network.